Hello, and welcome to Convivium Salon, a podcast produced by Revolution of Tenderness. This is Suzanne Lewis, and today I'm going to read to you an excerpt from a forthcoming novel written by Pellegrine Duell. The novel is called Madrigal, and it tells the story of three French women, all of them historical figures, and the first one is Matahari, the infamous female spy who was executed by firing squad by the French government for being a double agent. This excerpt is called Eye of the Day by Pellegrine Duel. Rudy came home to Amsterdam to heal from malaria in 1893. Everyone knows a little quinine does the trick, but for other ailments, well, we mustn't name them. So strange to think that my life's most miserable mistake, one that crushed me both body and soul, resulted from a joke. Yes, monsieur, one of Rudy's inebriated monsters. He called them friends, but I ask you, what sorts of friends aid and abet the worsening of one's character? This degenerate told him, You need a wife, my dear old chap. A wife will keep you in line and protect you from the clap. She might even sober you for a day or two. And to extend the joke, the Cretan, who was a newspaper reporter, but not like you, monsieur, placed an ad in the news of the day where I had the misfortune to read it. Rudy didn't hesitate to tell me how he and his fellow bums roared with laughter over the responses he received. Plain Janes and prissy spinsters, hoping an older man would settle for one of them. My inquiry came last of all. The photo I sent reflected my great beauty and breeding. It did cross his mind momentarily that I had sent my own joke to mock his photo. He couldn't rip his eyes off my face, though. My alluring eyes beckoned to him, even from his dreams. I have always had this effect on men. He felt compelled to meet me, and on first glance my face betrayed no mockery. Instead, he glimpsed that hunger in me, like a great feline predator in a jungle, he'd said. My impatience to uncover what the adults kept availing from me to disrobe myself and be known completely, to ravish and be ravished, flowed from my pores so that any tomcat in Amsterdam could smell it. Yet I played coy, insisted on a wedding with a fine dress, a train, and a ridiculous veil because Rudy's reaction to me made me drunk. His hard little eyes melted, turning disarmed and dreamy as they beheld me. He doted on my most banal word. I had only to look at a handbag, and it was mine. I calculated to remain drunk on my power over him would afford me years of addictive pleasure. From a certain angle, I considered marriage as a form of business deal, you could say. But before I had grown a nose for business, I knew so little of life then. Stupid. How quickly a coin flips to reveal its ugly tail end. Beware men who appear slavish. You must write those words for your female readers, monsieur. Under their meek acquiescence lurks violent rage. Now, 
One can earn quite a bit of money off such men, though it requires great skill, prudence, and self-restraint to do, and most women are not cut out for such work. Only a woman with the temperament and distance and weapons of a lion tamer stands a chance with them. I did acquire those skills later, when I saw the harsh reality of my life and knew that destiny demanded it. But what did I know at age 18? If fate had sent me Vavotchka then, would I have loved him with such purity? He might have recoiled at the sight of the great feline predator. No word from Vavotchka, monsieur? Ah, well, I assumed since you did not mention it when you arrived. My 18-year-old self could not love a man such as my Vavotchka with his earnest eyes, always slightly troubled with worry for me and his nobility, reflected in his plump mouth and smooth, pale hands, which have never inflicted pain on anyone. Well, during his training, and then as an active soldier, when harm was required, certainly fought, yet, yet war softened him in the end. Once Vova slapped at a fly that was annoying me, and when he saw its tangled, crushed body, he wept with remorse, for having killed one of God's creatures. Not so, Rudy. We married in 1895. Even on the first night when I saw what he was, he was done after 90 seconds, and then declared us both done, as if one could survive eating only a single olive each day. I should have run away. I should have waited for the next advertisement. What an efficient man, so brave and soldierly. Later that same night, he told me that my beauty had caused him to misfire, and I mistook his words for an apology or teasing pillow talk. But you see, he blamed me. He reproached me, even for my beauty. No, particularly for my beauty. As the weeks and months passed, if another officer so much as looked at me, Rudy punished me later. He carried a small ledger book in his pocket, which he would pull out and fill with marks. One for each of my sins, he said. Evenings when we were alone, and after he'd completed his 90-second exercises, he would strike me once for each mark in his book. Then he would take up his pencil and cross out the marks. Each day I give you a fresh page, wife, he'd say. A blank page, and look how you dirty it. Perhaps now you see my undimmed spirit, monsieur, and you doubt that someone, such as you see before you, could submit to such tortures. I often ponder the same question. Rudy didn't dare aim for my abdomen, for his own seed was growing there. The coward also left my face untouched for fear that others would see the evidence of his brutality. No, his slaps and blows found my more hidden, tender zones and came right on the heels of that 90 seconds of rough treatment. I wonder if you can imagine the unwelcome pleasure mixed with humiliation, which mounted but never found release and ended in bruises that prevented me from sitting without pain. My little Norman, I didn't mind that when he took up residence in my body, my breasts expanded to over twice their size. But the other changes to my body devastated me, monsieur. To see my ankles thicken, my abdomen swell, then balloon out and wag to and fro, a 
fat freckle appeared on my lower lip. My skin coarsened. My hair became rough and stiff as bristles. Nothing deterred Rudy from his nightly ritual. However, he showed respect for my navel and what grew beneath it, managing with some contortions never to press against my belly. In this way, I learned that we loved something in common, even if not one another. The KNUL cleared Rudy to return to military service in the East Indies, but then I fell ill. When Rudy saw the small brown pustules on my palms and the bottoms of my feet, he forbade me from telling the doctor, who was puzzled at my slight fever that continued without worsening nor improvement over the last weeks of my enclosure. Rudy informed his superior officer that my condition was too delicate for travel. Just before my time, the rash subsided and the fever forgot about me, or so it seemed. I recall thinking with great relief that now my infant would not be sickened by me. Such a joy overtook my heart. I will spare you the details. I fear your masculine heart might shrink in fear at all a woman must endure in childbirth. Let me only remark that I learned my strength that day. No screaming for me, monsieur, I growled and roared as a lioness guarding her cubs. When the nurse tried to pick up a lamp, I imperiously ordered her to put it back, and she obeyed. Then, with all my lion's strength, when I pushed him forth, the doctor gingerly laid my sweet Norman onto my belly. How I wept at the sight of his arms and legs, splayed and slick and reddened from their ordeal, and his long, perfect egg of a face, my baby, my flesh, my strength, all my potential, my heart turned inside out for the world to see. Only later we would discover that he also bore my illness on his palms and feet and in his tiny heart, or not my illness, Rudy's unwanted wedding gift wrapped in all his other bad qualities. The passage on the Princess Amalia steamship gave me my first taste of sweet freedom. Yes, freedom tastes of salt air and burning coal and rotten fish. How impatient I felt to lose sight of land and to be surrounded by the vast sea. Amalia's prow cut the waves open and tossed them to either side. The sun bounced off the crusting water, which changed color from brown to green to turquoise to white and all shades in between. As I stood at the rail, every muscle in my body seemed to lean forward, to urge the ship to go faster, to make us press on. Mealtimes brought amusing pleasures, too. As Rudy sucked down one whiskey after another, I sometimes managed to elude his hawkish stare and find unattached officers with whom to flirt. I blame Rudy for my wandering eye. If he'd shown me even the smallest drop of devotion, I would not have had to find admiration elsewhere. Or did he want me to become hollowed out, bitter, and capable of vivacity? How could men desire such a woman? And yet their behavior often whittles down their wives' spirits until the broken shell is all that remains. None of that for me, I tell you. Life, and more life, filled me to the brim. 
No amount of beating could dissuade me from the pleasure of having a man's hungry eyes on me. Pushing Norman's pram on deck seemed to make me more desirable to the other men, too. That surprised me. Perhaps my baby represented an added challenge? Meanwhile, each day drove us deeper and deeper into the strangeness of foreign skies. Did you know that the sky changes mood according to her location? She smells so much more readily the further south you come, until her expression glitters hot as molten iron. Even her blue alters according to location. The men change according to her fancy, too. The pale Dutch on board, Amalia, needed hats, parasols, and awnings stretched above their heads. But my skin soaked up the sun and grew darker with each new port of call, so that I fancied myself a chameleon, adapting to the natives of each new latitude. No, that's right, not all of them. Though I wished to turn black as ebony, I grew only as dark as an Egyptian. This transformation of my skin reminded me of Norman's growth while he lived in my belly. Somehow I was ripening in preparation for my own birth. When we entered the Suez Canal at Port Said, throngs came to the banks to witness our passage. The engine slowed to a whisper as we crawled through the narrow canal. Large white birds flapped along the bare masts and sometimes dove at the Dutch if they remained too still. As the ship slowed, I paced the deck with greater urgency, willing us forward as though my own desire could compel the ship to move more quickly. What a relief to break out into the Red Sea and later to the Arabian Sea, where the captain could order more and more coal onto the fire and for all the sails to be flung at the wind so that we finally flew out across the water again. The entire trip lasted a little over a month. We met up with some squalls and one little storm, which sent all the other ladies and Rudy himself clutching my Norman, scurrying to their cabins. To convince the deckhands to allow me to stay outside, I had to consent to being lashed to one of the masts, where the sea kindly blew up and around me so that I felt myself surrounded by rain mixed with ocean droplets and wind gusting from all directions at once. What a frenzy of passion! I recognized this storm because we were kindred. Finally exhausted from having been battered for hours, I descended to my cabin, where Rudy began a tirade. But I, utterly spent after communing with the storm, passed out in my bunk into a sleep so deep that no further abuse could awaken me. And thus, after a brief call at Batavia, the Amalia brought us safely to Samarang. That rough ninety seconds, followed by the slaps and weak punches over all my bare skin, left me in a state, turning the heat up underneath me. I began to cast about, anxious to find a way to cool myself and to escape the humiliation, which I have since sworn never to allow again. I considered an affair with our gardener, who spoke no Dutch and could not tattle. I'm not proud of the hours I spent fantasizing how I'd entrap him, threaten him if necessary, and use him as Rudy used me. Though with far more gentleness, I wouldn't strike him. I vowed it, so long as the gardener satisfied me. That adventure, once I embarked, left me disillusioned. The gardener offered no resistance to my advances, 
though he showed no real interest. With an impassive face, he simply performed his gymnastics, which, to be fair, were far more imaginative and drawn out than anything Rudy had executed. His scent of the soil mixed with his perspiration, salt bitter as an aperitif, inebriated me for the first time I experienced what you French call jouissance through the ministrations of another. I didn't lose anything, that is the wrong way to speak about it, but I consider it my first time. All the while, though, his face, so devoid of expression or feeling, and the furtive way he covered himself at the very moment of completion, dashed from the room when he ought to have kissed me, caressed me, and whispered, Camus Cantique, left my heart cold, empty, and bored. But what could I do? One cannot beat a man to induce him to be sweeter. Evidently, the traitor told his wife, as I came to learn later, but I get ahead of myself, don't mistake me, monsieur, my tears are not for the gardener, nor his betrayal. You will see. When next I saw Rudy, my chin lifted like so, and my face must have beamed with victory because he said, Why so smug and conceited, wife? What mischief have you done to splatter my good name, which after all you have misused so many, many times? But as no visitors had come to call, and as the notion that I would play at his own game of mixing with the locals could never occur to him, my transgression didn't materialize as a mark in his little book. From the moment of the gardener, I learned a new secret. Now, I mean no offense to you, monsieur. In fact, you may be different, but I want to share an observation with you about men. I believe that they, that is you, I beg your pardon, Despise intercourse. Let me explain. When a man looks at a beautiful woman, he sees a walking promise. She stirs something deep inside him, something gorgeous, the very best thing in his nature. Perhaps her curves remind him of what he lacks. But a man will stare at a woman's forearm, where the muscle subtly bellies out as a taut sail in a breeze. Even the planes of a woman's face or the pale smoothness of the back of her little hand, can stop a crowd of men in their tracks and hold them spellbound. Why do a woman's rounded edges awaken so much in men? I will tell you. Men look for fullness, a particular fullness, such as perhaps the peasants of old experienced when the harvest had been collected into granaries and the fields that stretched for miles smelled of the earth's goodness and their muscles ached sweetly from labor well done, because they knew the plenty could feed their neighbors too, and from dawn to dusk, and they were exhausted but relaxed and safe from whatever winter could bring, and their hearts overflowed that friendships could even be born from the swell and roll of the earth. Men see the promise of fruitfulness in women. Their curves remind men of their round planet and of apples that spray their juice upon the first crunch, or pineapples whose syrupy goodness courses over the chin and beard and cataracts of flavor, or the musky nectar of the peach still clinging to the branch, or even the canine grapes, each bigger than a man's head, whose jelly turns to mellowest wine. But this great emotion, perhaps the most generous emotion he can feel, also ignites an urge over which he has no control, a 
chemical takes over, compels him, enslaves him, really, so that long after he knows what will happen next, he faces the woman as he would an orchard, ripe to bursting with every exotic fruit he knows, and instead of setting to work with wisdom and care, such that he doesn't bruise and ruin what he touches, he wields the scythe, slashing wildly and blindly through the branches, smashing into whatever his hand grabs, swallowing without tasting and leaving broken pieces on the ground to feed the worms and insects. Then he steps back, and what does he see? Not the lovely mounds of fallow earth, not a harvest earned with his sweat and the precious hours of his life, but another human being. He feels betrayed. Men fall prey to their urges and instincts, which war against all that is fine in them, but since the first man, their eyes fall on the woman, and they blame her. You may disagree, monsieur, but perhaps if you are honest? Oh, they know they are slaves to the chemical in their blood, just as the drunk cannot put down a bottle. A man will never grow accustomed to slavery's bitter aftertaste. How surprising it seemed when I explained all of this to Vovodka, and he thanked me. He would trace my curves with a finger for hours, never asking for a bite, until I yielded. Ah, please forgive me, monsieur. Certainly, certainly you must say au revoir. You promise to return tomorrow? Good. See you in the morning, then. This reading was brought to you by Revolution of Tenderness. For more information on the work of Revolution of Tenderness and Convivium, please visit our website at www.revolutionoftenderness.net. Thank you for listening.